Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. We saw this as essentially something that could work from both ends if we were to tap into the family members and formalize them more into the process of healthcare delivery and, and train them on how to take care of the patient and, and really have them be um, providers for the patient's care and leverage them better. If your story is not resonating with the person that's sitting across from you or the people that are sitting across from you, you know someone else whose work they'll find really fascinating. Part of what's been exciting is meeting people who want to get involved in this space and even if we're not working on something that really strikes a chord with them or that is inspiring to them, chances are there's someone in our network that that person absolutely has to meet. I'm very pleased today to welcome Kate, Edith and Shahed, founders of Nura Health. Nura Health focuses on patients' transition between hospital and home, one of the most precarious and rushed times in healthcare delivery. Nura provides training and information to caregivers and patients after surgery to ensure that patients are well taken care of during their recovery process to improve health outcomes and save lives. To date, Nura has trained and certified more than 25,000 caregivers representing over 18,000 patients in India and has already demonstrated dramatic improvement in patient health outcomes. So thank you very much for taking the time today to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your uh, journey and your experience and the great work you're doing at Nora. Can you introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Shahid Alam. I'm one of the co-founders at Nora Health. And I'm the chief strategy officer, basically looking after our external partnerships with hospitals and other healthcare providers. I'm Katie Yash. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders and the chief design officer. And I'm Edith Elliott, uh, also a co-founder here at Nora Health, and I'm our CEO. Great. It's a great privilege to speak to you today. So can you tell me a little bit about Nora? Sure. So uh, at Nora Health, what we focus on is helping patient families um, be more involved in uh, the patient's health care so that there's better transition home um, from a healthcare environment. So um, we essentially came on this idea when uh, Edith, Katie, and I uh, took a class at the Stanford Design School, and we were essentially randomly assigned to uh, be on a project together where we would apply design thinking to uh, an issue within an emerging or, or developing economy. We chose India and, and healthcare. Um, and what we did was came to India with really an open mind on, on what to work on and talk to everyone within the health ecosystem here. So the patients and families, of course, doctors, nurses, uh, went to several different types of hospitals, went and followed people when they uh, went back to home uh, after they were actually at a hospital facility. Um, and the thing that really struck us was this, was this need uh, from both the provider and the family perspective. The providers were uh, essentially very um, overburdened with providing that basic medical care um, and really stretched the limit. And uh, the families, on the other hand, were kind of uninvolved during that whole process and uh, left in the dark and, and were not confident in how to take care of the patient, especially when they went home. Um, so we, we saw this as, uh, you know, essentially something that could 
work from both ends, if we were to tap into the family members and formalize them more into the process of healthcare delivery and, and train them on how to take care of the patient and, and really have them be um, providers for the patient's care and leverage them better. Um, and, and we felt that this could, you know, greatly, re- you know, increase their confidence, reduce their anxiety and have a better transition for them home. Um, so we, we started down this path of testing different models and ideas of how to, how to engage the patient family and have landed on quite a simple, you know, training program that uses a variety of different tools and methods to be able to engage uh, patient families from, from different backgrounds and different uh, medical condition areas. That sounds very exciting. Uh, as you say, you come up with a simple method, I suppose. It's taken a while to get to the, the one that works. In a, I guess, a cohort of patients or a number of patients who are leaving, how many patients or patients' families would actually take this up and follow through on it? Because presumably you make it available to a wide group of, of families, but not everybody has that the conditions or is able, presumably, to, to actually follow through and use the material. When we work in a healthcare environment, we typically focus on you know one or two areas that are uh, highest impact within within that environment. So, um, for example, in a hospital, if they're seeing major cardiology or cardiac surgery patients, we we focus on that and we ensure that. Um, as many uh, patient families as possible uh, end up going through that, uh, going through the the training. Um, so what we see is, you know, the vast majority of the patients who are who are in that particular condition area actually do end up getting the training that um, you know that that we've set out for them. Um, and and once they've received that training, they um, uh, you know, our research has shown that uh, they, they follow up on practicing the skills and changing their behaviors from what they were before. That sounds great. That sounds great. And a key aspect of design thinking is, is I guess, this idea of getting close to users and understanding how they engage with what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and that's been something that's uh, really driven the core of our model from from the very beginning to you know every single iteration and change that we make what's at stake here what is the scale of the problem basically something it's not working the current setup what are the consequences of that basically the consequence the system's not working in a couple of ways one healthcare personnel are extremely overtaxed which means that in low resource situations doctors are seeing hundreds of patients a day This makes it virtually impossible for them to be able to communicate any sort of information to those families. At the same time, families, you know, without that information to be able to act on their condition and prevent uh, their disease or do the things that they need to in order to prevent complications. You know, people are being sent home with diabetes, but not really knowing what to do about it. So we kind of come in and fill that gap because family members are spending an insane amount of time waiting in these health institutions. There's a lot of downtime. In that downtime, you can really, you know, do an incredible job of even in an hour or two to convey, you know, a dozen of the most important health skills to that family member to really be able to help save that patient's life 
right. um, prevent complications that are very dangerous. Right, because that's what I guess I'm, I'm interested in. So what, do you have any sense of the scale of the problem? What, what are the, consequ- the health consequences of this, of these failings? Do you have any sense of what's at stake in that sense, you know, physically? I mean, the scale of the problem? So, the, I mean, the consequences vary across all of the conditions that humans face. But for example, for cardiac surgery, um, you know, we're seeing a really significant decrease in infections um, at 30 days, a reduction in fevers. Um, people aren't having to come back into the hospital. And the true scale of the consequences occurs because um, this training and engagement is one that can and should happen with literally every patient and every diagnosis that comes into a healthcare setting. And so there's, uh, like Katie was saying, there's, you know, a, a different perhaps complication or medical issue that's averted with better self-care, but the mission is to improve that self-care across the board, um, across all healthcare settings. Um, so, so the magnitude of, of the situation is basically every patient that comes through uh, a doctor's clinic or a hospital, the health system can be doing a better job of engaging them, their families, in, in how to care for themselves. You were motivated by just seeing the, the inefficiencies and seeing, I guess, the human suffering of people who are presumably having post-operation complications, getting infections, maybe relapses and fatalities. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and really, one of the large motivating factors was the realization that it was relatively simple information that needed to be communicated and relayed that would make a tremendous difference in someone's life. So can you tell me a little bit about the role of design thinking in this and the role of innovation? And, you know, when you first started to look at the problem, as you said, this seems like it's pretty straightforward kind of information. At first glance, it looked like it was something that would be pretty straightforward to actually uh, deal with. Yeah, so... We're born out of the Stanford Design School, so it, it's very much a core part of our DNA. What that really means is that every single product, uh, every single facet of the service that we make is done very much in collaboration with the users. So whenever we're about to create a training program in a new condition area, we will actually go and shadow families in that community. We will uh, go and learn everything that they know about a particular condition area. And then the next step is to basically make some prototypes and show them um, and get feedback, really early feedback on things that don't look polished. So they're not scared to give um, harsh feedback. So I think where innovation comes in there is that we allow ourselves to be continuously surprised we're not going with our we're not going in with our presumptions and trying to impose a service or technology on our users they're really asking for it and helping us um, kind of wiggle our way to something that's going to work really well for them so if you took from where you first started and your first assumptions about how you needed you know what needed to be done how different is what you're doing today? And can you, you know, maybe just elaborate a little bit about how the design thinking or your approach there got you to a solution that you might not otherwise have got to? I think the, the core need that we identified from, from day one in, you know, the interviews we had when we first came here on the ground in India 
probably has not changed that much. We we really, um, you know, part of the reason why we we have felt so drawn to this mission and um, and perhaps why it's been successful is because it's um, it really does pull on an innate need that that rests in the in the health system and how it's delivered. Um, what we have discovered and definitely have iterated on in in order to meet that need is exactly you know the the methodology, the tools that we create, the information that we um, actually communicate to people, um, and seeing what uh, what is actually relevant as and interesting and actually um, actionable for people. So that has um, definitely evolved, and and you know assumptions that we make. Um, from kind of a medical perspective of what's important for a family member to know is not necessarily the ones that are um, actually most highly relevant and impactful for them. Um, so like Katie had mentioned, kind of use, uh, um, collaborating with our users in creation of these materials really helps us hone in on, on, the, on the right answer. Um, so while, you know, that innate need and motivation and space in where we're working hasn't changed, definitely the way um, all the tools that we create and the, and the information that we communicate um, changes day by day because we learn basically every day um, from, from interactions with our, with our users. And just to add on to what Shahid said, we make change and these innovations happen in small uh, incremental ways versus uh, large uh, large design sessions where we're completely revamping something and then putting it out. And instead, as you said, we're pushing out new content, getting immediate rapid feedback, and then iterating as that feedback comes in. So it's it's difficult to say, you know, three years ago our product looked like this and today it looks like something completely different. There that small incremental change makes the the larger change a bit uh, a bit fuzzier. We knew that videos were going to be a good way of sharing information with people because there can be a lot of inconsistency in the classroom, but if we do a really good job of conveying the first pass of information through a video, then then we know that you know they'll get 85% of the information, which is great. But how to convey that information through a video has changed a lot over time. What we learned is that the information actually sticks best for people when we have a combination of narrative. So the videos are actually family-based dramas and people are acting as the patient and the caregiver. Um, and it's it involves much more of a story. Um, but we also have a very kind of authoritative doctor-looking character that explains some of the information. Um, so this helps kind of add validity and uh, helps the information stick the best with people. Um, we used to make videos that would repeat a lot of the same information within, uh, within the video, but now we reinforce the information through the video one time and we show the information again in a large visual diagram. Um, and then we also give them take-home materials. So they see the same information repeated three different places, um, and it all connects, um, but it, it helps different types of learners uh, really remember uh, the information. And what's the scale of your activity at the moment? 
So we currently work with 25 hospital partners across India. We work with both uh, public and private uh, hospitals. And to date, we've trained over 60,000 family members. So what are your goals in terms of the scale of where you want to be in three, five years? How do you think about that? So over the next three to five years, we hope to use India as our uh, test case to gather the necessary clinical data, outcomes data, and cost-effectiveness data to show that this is a scalable and very powerful global health intervention. We hope to be working with over 150 hospitals in the next three years. And at that point, we should be reaching over a million people. But if you think about it, in India, which has a population of over 1.2 billion, a million people is really, it's barely a drop in the bucket. So what we're more interested in and the design challenge that we're now looking at is how might we make this the new standard of care? How might we prove out the model to the point where the global community can look at this example that we've set and say and figure out ways to adapt and transform the model to meet the needs of their particular health system. Uh, so for us, it's less about growing the organization, growing Nora Health to be a large uh, implementer around the world. And instead, we see our jobs as one of being uh, of needing to prove the the efficacy of the model, and then provide tools and resources and best practices such that other governments, implementing organizations and individuals even can use what we've built and iterate on it. What kind of help have you had along the way building the organization? You know, you mentioned it came out of the Stanford design. It was an idea developed there. Can you talk a little bit about getting support and funding on your journey? Absolutely. We've been really uh, lucky to have worked with some of the most incredible uh, incubators, accelerators, and funders that exist in this space. Uh, so shortly after coming out of the design school, we were provided with some additional support from Stanford for about a, a six-month period. Uh, very early in our development, we went through something called Y Combinator, which is an incubator in the Bay Area. Uh, traditionally, they had only worked with for-profit companies, but after a, a, an experience working with one nonprofit, they decided to open up their application pool to social ventures. And we were a part of the first class of social ventures to go through the program. And Y Combinator, for any of your listeners that don't know about it, is a, a three-month-long program where you work uh, very hard and, and focus on one particular output that you're driving toward uh, over that three-month period, at the end of which you're able to pitch in front of some of the world's most powerful investors and funders. So Y Combinator was, of course, an incredible support and opportunity for us in our early stages of development. And then coming out, out of that, we've worked with and been supported by uh, foundations that focus on early-stage ventures, uh, social ventures, and all of our funders provide unrestricted financial support, which is very unique in the world of nonprofits. Typically, funding is tied to program outputs or tied to uh, specific uh, implementing programs. In our case, we are holding ourselves accountable to milestones and metrics, impact metrics. We say our ROI is return on impact. Uh, and our funders, we've, we've built a community of funders who not only share those values, but have the experience of working with 
hundreds of organizations who have also been driving toward that that similar goal. That sounds great. It's a, it is a perennial issue, I think, for social innovators getting the access to that unrestricted funding. And there are a lot of important questions, I guess, around that, um, which maybe we'll, we, we could talk about a little later. You mentioned Y Combinator. And can you maybe give me some sense, because I know more about its work in, with traditional for-profits. How has that worked for, you know, for you as a social business? And what have been some of the, you know, more profound insights from the experience? Well, I think Y Combinator applies almost just as well to a a social enterprise as it does to any for-profit startup because a lot of the issues um, that we go to go through as early stage organizations are are very parallel remaining focused extremely driven uh, really pushing yourself to meet those metrics to try crazy bold things that you wouldn't otherwise do um, and to make sure that you are keeping your eye on that north star um, it's really easy uh, to start uh, floundering, especially when you have a social mission. It's not as clear what you're after as a dollar all of the time, um, but they really do a great job of focusing you and uh, holding you accountable. So we've replicated a lot of the process that we went through at Y Combinator um, in order to make sure that internally we are maintaining that level of focus and drive within the organization. Right, right. Can you give me an example of how that works? You said some of the processes from Y Combinator, what that looked like in your organization. So instead of everyone just giving a general status update, um, people having metrics that they're reporting back on, uh, that they're measured against. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Why you didn't get there. Right. So it's targets and very clear responsibility for achieving certain targets and outcomes. Exactly. It's it's a it's a very uh, metric, data driven approach. Right. And so how many different funders have you gotten? Can you talk a little bit about some lessons? Because presumably when you started out, you didn't know so much about getting funds. It it seems to be quite a complex field and one that's evolving. Various different kinds of funders involved, different organizations, different objectives, and quite a lot of hybrids as well. I don't know. Is there anything you can say about that? Yeah. So we, as I mentioned, we have a relatively small pool of funders compared to to some of our peer organizations. and right. as mentioned, they tend to be uh, family foundations, uh, incubators, or individuals who can turn checks around relatively quickly, who don't require a significant amount of reporting, but who are really more advisors and collaborators with the organization versus exclusively funders. So none of our funders uh, hear from us only at the point where we're reporting on a grant. We remain in uh, in contact with them at least once a quarter, if not more. But the it's not your traditional reporting as such. It's more of a two-way conversation uh, that takes place. And for us, fundraising is less about, um, you know, we haven't done any grant writing, for example. We've instead tried to engage with and and find funders who believe in the mission, who are interested in and excited by the outcomes that we're seeing, and who'd like to join us on this journey versus uh, write a check and then not. Yes. 
not hear from us again for another year. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it's a much more collaborative process. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds brilliant. And how have you found these funders? How is it? How's that process been? I know it can be very time consuming for some organizations and, and challenging, really. How have you gone about building those relationships? It's It's been very organic in many ways. You know, it, through Y Combinator, we were exposed to a, a network and a community of people uh, through many of our other funders. Uh, doors have been opened, but it, it always starts with a conversation. It always starts with that personal relationship. And in our case, we, you know, as I mentioned, we haven't done any grant writing. Uh, and that's largely because we've been introduced to people who know people. And so it's a, it's a network effect. Um, and that's what's worked for us. You know, as we grow, however, we do need to start looking at additional funding opportunities that uh, are multi-year, for example, uh, where we are likely going to be held to to more of that project-based funding. We hope that we're able to have a revenue model and a more sustainable model that that doesn't put us in the position of, of constantly fundraising. We said to ourselves when we started this, you know, none of us are fundraisers. We were good at doing the work that we do. We're not necessarily good at asking people for money. So uh, making sure that we're not spending, we're spending as little of our time as possible on fundraising was one of our key, key goals. Um, and so far, so far it's worked. That sounds great. I understand you talk about the impact and, and measuring your impact and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? As you say, it's tricky compared to for-profit. Figures can speak louder, uh, clearer, simpler than maybe some other kinds of variables. How has your thinking on measuring impact of your work evolved? It definitely is a complex issue, especially because we're in the, uh, in the medical field and dealing with patients from across the board. Um, so, I mean, the very basic way we see impact is in our output, our ability to reach as many families as possible and developing the partnerships so that we are able to um, hit our targets in terms of the numbers of families that have been trained. Um, and then in terms of that quality of training that we are um, intending to achieve and what that training actually does to the medical outcomes, that's been an area where we've had to really explore um, what is the best way to, uh, what are the best metrics and what's the best way to track it? Um, especially in a, in a health system where, uh, these impact indicators, these medical outcomes are not currently being tracked by the hospitals themselves. And there's really a poor follow-up for, uh, patients who get diagnosed with a certain condition. We, we've, we're having to basically collect all of this data ourselves. Um, but it's something that, you know, as an organization, we feel is, one of the most important things we can do because unless we truly understand what's happening to people when they go home, we're never going to understand the, the true impact of this initiative. Um, so, you know, across each different area, each different type of patient we deal with, we come up with um, two, two sets of indicators. One that's a little bit more on the, the softer side in terms of, you know, the psychosocial impact of something like this. Does this actually reduce their anxiety levels? Are they more confident to go home? Do they feel uh, more confident to take care of uh, the patient? Um, and then once they are actually at home, what is, uh, what is the impact on their uh, patient's medical outcome? So uh, one of the things Katie mentioned for cardiac surgical patients, we looked at actual complication rates 
uh, after a surgery, things like wound infections or respiratory infections that we were bringing down. Um, and for each of the areas that we're working with in terms of uh, new mothers and, and, and uh, neonates and diabetes patients, there's similar uh, medical um, outcomes that we'll be tracking uh, to ensure that, you know, that there, it is having an impact when they actually reach their homes. Right. That's great. It's very interesting. You talked also earlier about this, uh, the revenue models are, are generating revenues. Can you talk a little bit about that that idea? Because certainly in the field of social innovation, you're seeing more hybrids and more organizations, whether for profit, but generating, trying to generate revenues in different ways, uh, different kinds of business models. How has your thinking and your experience evolved? We, we kind of think of it in, in two ways. One is of course, it would be uh, incredible for this to be a sustainable venture where uh, we're able to cross-subsidize the, the work with um, a variety of diverse partners because we were able to gather revenue from, from several. Even, even on top of that, um, so basically our, our model is to be charging the private for-profit hospitals that we work with um, in order to support some of the work in the more mission-based or public facilities that we work in. Um, and, and the goal is twofold. One is, as I mentioned, sustainability, but the second and likely the more important one is um, it, really, it really drives us to uh, create uh, tangible value within the system. Um, and when a private uh, hospital partner sees that value and is actually willing to pay, uh, pay a premium for it, then, then we know we're you know, on the right track. And it actually really sophisticates our uh, way of interacting with our clients, our partners, um, yeah, because you know the our payment depends on it, and and it really um, helps helps drive the business forward. So while I mean the end game is definitely sustainability, it um, it really you know in in our development helps us mature in how we interact with um, the health system. Right, right. We've discussed a couple of the challenges in particular that social businesses, uh, social entrepreneurs face. What other challenges have you in particular had to deal with? What would you say are one or two of the biggest challenges that you've had to deal with that maybe we haven't discussed? There are so many. How do we pick one yeah. or two? <laughs> one of our big struggles in the early days was learning how to tell our story in a way that people would understand. No, I think that's quite interesting, telling your story. How has it been communicating and talking about what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting because in the early days, we knew what we wanted to do. We were very excited about it. It had this very gripping, intuitive feel from our perspectives. But we hadn't figured out how to do a really good job of communicating what it was that we were actually trying to do to a group of funders who a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them haven't been to the place that we're trying to impact and definitely have had lives that look pretty different from, um, from, from the populations that we're trying to impact. So, so breaking down the story in a way that it um, can reach across all of those different boundaries Yes, absolutely. Did you get any insights into how to do that, what the best way to do that was, or some lessons for others, social entrepreneurs on their journey trying to communicate as well? I mean, I think at least part of the answer to that is realizing that it wasn't that complicated, <laughs> that what we're trying to do is simple, 
um, that what we're trying to do is something that can feel very familiar for the people that we're fundraising from. Um, everyone has a family. Everyone has experienced someone that they're close to going through an illness and feeling helpless. What happens next can look very different, but not necessarily. I think for for us as well, one of the lessons I've learned, and I, I think each of us has learned over the, the last few years, is that fundraising, any sort of engagement with someone who is either going to you know, write a check or make a connection for you or uh, has a door to open, it's a conversation and it's a relationship. And trying to, to keep, to remind yourself of that and remind yourself that you, you're working on something important, you're working on something interesting. And if you are working on something honest and 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 that is creating real impact in the world, then you have an incredible story to, to share and to tell. And that story will resonate with some people and it won't resonate with others. But chances are, in your internal Rolodex, if your story is not resonating with the person that's sitting across from you or the people that are sitting across from you, you know someone else whose work they'll find really fascinating. And so for us, part for me, and I think for all of us, part of what's been exciting is meeting people who want to get involved in this space. And even if we don't have, uh, if, if we're not working on something that really strikes a chord with them or that is inspiring to them, chances are there's someone in our network that that person absolutely has to meet. Um, so for me, playing, playing the role of both the connector and being the one be- getting connected to people has been such an, a, an exhilarating and interesting experience. I've definitely been in so many conversations with Edith where <laughs> she's uh, talking up, you know, another amazing organization working in a, in a similar field. And um, it, it feels good to be able to, you know, work on some of these issues as a, as, you know, as a collaboration, even if, you know, we're not directly partnering with other organizations, but, um, you know, just kind of helping each other out along the way. That sounds very interesting. Sounds very smart, but also very good way of, of, of helping others and helping, I guess, build a community of organizations working in the same space and supporters and things, which is, seems to be very important. I think it's quite easy to get isolated in your own project and your own problems and not really look around so much at others in the same space. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I always keep in mind is that we're not here to sell anything no, I, just, I feel like too often in fundraising people feel like they're ha- especially when when you're early and when you're just starting yeah. you feel like you have to there's a lot of you have to convince every single yeah. person yeah, yeah. but you don't but you, <laughs> yeah. don't. you really don't yes yeah. and just it's like just at least 50% of people are just going to look past you and be yeah. like, uh-huh, and then kind of walk away. Yeah. Which like is a great. Dead look in their eyes. Yeah. That's fine. It's fine, yeah. And sometimes what I think is even more interesting is understanding why people aren't intrigued or interested. And that's where you re- that's where you get the real insights, and that's how you can better, you know, as you were talking about storytelling earlier, that's how you can better illuminate the work that you're doing and talk about the work that you're doing in any setting. Yes, and we learned one of our our funders, one of our supporters in particular. Um, it's called the Malago Foundation, and they talk about the eight word mission statement. And they also Kevin Starr, who's who uh, is with Malago, he is very good at helping you think about you know th- this concept of an elevator pitch is sort of archaic. Nobody actually has a conversation in an elevator. So what you need to be prepared for is not the 30-second elevator pitch. What you need to be prepared for is the conversation 
when you're at a cocktail party or the conversation when you're at a conference and someone you're introduced to someone or someone comes up to you and you have maybe 20 seconds to catch their attention. And what it's really about is not pitching yourself or promoting yourself. Your job is to listen and your job is to, to hear what someone is interested in. What do you have to, to simply have a conversation with someone and have those maybe two to three bullet points in your mind that you want to make sure this person understands about your work so that when they're in their next conversation, they can say, hey, I just met this really cool group of people who are doing X, Y, and Z. And they can say what X, Y, and Z are very clearly and articulate that in a clear way. Too often we overcomplicate things. And so making yes. sure you're not overcomplicating is key. Yes. I spoke to Kevin earlier at the beginning of the podcast, and he's been a great supporter. I've spoken to many, many uh, from Malago. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And what you say is important the there in the sense that I think that you don't want to have partnerships with the wrong people either. You know, so if, if it doesn't resonate, if it's not what somebody else is looking for uh, today, if they've got different objectives or a different understanding, better not to be in try and be in relation or partner with them in that sense. You know, there are other ways, you know, as you say, you can introduce them or so forth forth but i think at the beginning as you say when when you're starting out and you you, you feel like you need to raise the you know the money and, and so forth it can feel a bit daunting if people aren't interested but i guess over time you just see that there inevitably will be some people who are on the same wavelength and get what you're about and part of the challenge is actually getting out to those people and meeting enough people i suppose that you get a good chance of, of, of getting supporters yeah one thing that we learned in y combinator this is i mean it's on this is their mantra is make something people want and that's certainly the case for typical for-profit companies, but it's even more the, the case in, in our opinion with nonprofits or social enterprises. If you're not fulfilling a deep need, if you're not working on something that is making a tremendous difference or impact in the world, then what are you doing? So in, in our case, uh, if you, if you're working on something that people want and need and if you're solving a, a big problem then chances are you're going to find people who are intrigued by that problem who are excited to join you on the journey and who are willing to either open doors write checks support you in whatever way they can so i think as long as you're working on something that's impactful chances are you're going to find people to support you that's great advice. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you all for taking the time to share your experience and your hard-won insights for inspiring social entrepreneurs today. And I wish you the very best of success in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.